0: Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the whole Bible through the lens of living water, and we hope you'll join us. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Living Water, where we're taking the idea of water or the lack of it or the presence of it uh, to look at stories in the Bible, to see old stories and meet old characters and perhaps see them in a new way and a new light. So today's episode is going to begin on the water at a place called Caesarea Maritima. Uh, You can find it today. It's a ruin between uh, the cities of Tel Aviv and Haifa on the coast, and it was a super port built by Herod the Great. Now, you will remember from past episodes, Herod the Great was the client king of the Romans. He ruled the world at the time of the birth of Jesus. He dies just just about just right at the birth of Jesus, and then also following him are successive Roman rulers. But but they are all gosh the entirety of Jesus' life is shaped by what Herod built and what left them. Uh, Herod, is any like any despot, would control their commerce with a port like this. And what he did is he took underwater concrete, which is a brand new invention, and created a place for ships to moor and then connect with the caravans on the inside. Incredible cash machine. He would control their thought by taking the temple that they already had and constructing a a glorious wonder of the ancient world that people would travel for hundreds and hundreds of miles to see. And then he would control their defense with super weapons like Masada Down by the Dead Sea. But back at Caesarea Maritima, it's a place that I always like to see when we're traveling along the coast of Israel and I'm taking groups. When I take groups of people, I like to play a game that I call a get. And a get is when you can open your Bible and you can look at scripture and then you can see the thing you're reading about. Or perhaps even better, you can touch it or walk on it. And for this reason, Caesarea Maritima is sort of the ultimate get uh, when it comes to the Bible because so many things have happened there. So first of all, there's the Herod thing. And then in Acts 24, Paul, St. Paul, was in prison there for two years. In 1961, they found at the house of the palace, which had formerly been Herod's palace, where he had these incredible uh, infinity pools, freshwater swimming pools that jutted out into the ocean. Speaking of water, that's how Herod showed his wealth in a world with very little water. uh, Herod, you know, Herod had all the water uh, and more, if you will. So he didn't need silver and gold. He just had a swimming pool. In that pleasure dome of a palace, Pontius Pilate, of the scriptures, of the suffered under Pontius Pilate in the creed fame, the trial of Jesus, Pontius Pilate lived in this palace. And in 1961, they found a limestone rock with his name on it. They call it the Pilate Stone, and it's in the Israel Museum today. And what's important about it is it shows you that Pontius Pilate lived in documented history, that our Gospels, the stories that we have in the Bible, they're not made up out of thin air, but rather real people, real places. So you can look at other sources, not just the Bible, uh, to find that Jesus existed, if you will. It's a thrilling, thrilling find. And so in Acts 24, Paul was imprisoned here. They didn't have jails in Rome. What you had was simply a closet or a basement of a handy building, and then they just lock you away. And we're told that Paul was awaiting a transport to Rome for his ultimate. Uh, appeal. And while he is in Caesarea Maritima on the coast, in a town with a racetrack and chambers of commerce, thats literally what they called them, chambers of commerce everywhere, buying and selling and buying and selling all this Roman commerce, Paul wrote his friends. He wrote his friends letters. Now, the letters in the backs of our Bible are just that, they're letters, they're not books. And I like to remind people that Paul didn't invent this idea. Romans were very, very uh, good at writing letters. They had good Roman roads, and the Mediterranean was a good transport system for, for not only commerce, but also communication. And so Roman letters were a very, very common thing. And Paul would write to his friends that he met on his journeys, if you will, to stay in touch with them and to encourage them and to pray for them. And it's very, very possible that Paul wrote his letter to his friends in Philippi, from the jail, from the basement of some building in Caesarea Philippi. Now, I need to back up for just a second because we go into this little podcast episode. Uh, When we talk about the Bible or the books in the backs of our Bible, the back of the New Testament, the the book of Acts is about Paul. The letters are by Paul. So sometimes when you go back and forth between the two, you've got Acts, which is more of a biography, and then the letters, which are more uh, memoir, if you will. And so Acts chapter 9, for instance, speaks of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. Speaking of a get, there's there's a cool altar that comes up out of the grass in the northern part of Israel near the Syrian and Lebanese border called Tel Amrit, and it's on the Damascus road. And Herod the Great built this altar to Caesar Augustus, proclaiming him a god, which you really get to see the hypocrisy of the dude, right? He builds the temple in Jerusalem into the wonder of the ancient world, but he's also building uh, an altar in the north to his boss, Caesar Augustus, to show you who's really in charge, right? But it sits on the paving stones of the road to Damascus. So again, not only did Jesus probably pass that way on his way to Caesarea Philippi, uh, as he did when Peter asked him, when Jesus said, excuse me, asked Peter, who do you say that I am, that famous chapter in Mark chapter 8, but you also have Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9 happening somewhere near there as well. It's a pretty cool get, meaning he's on his way to Damascus to round up Christians in chains when this bright light knocks Paul off his horse. A lot of us like to speak of that scene as Paul's conversion, but I like to think it happens somewhere else. In Acts chapter 7, which is just two chapters before, a Jewish person named Stephen is killed by rocks outside the temple walls, and Paul holds the coats of the men who kill him. Now, if you're reading Acts carefully, you'll notice that at that point of the story, his name is Saul, and then later after his conversion, they call him Paul. And in my Sunday school days, I was always taught that that's when Paul became a Christian. That's not really true. Paul had two names, and this is an important detail to also interpret Acts chapter 7. Paul's name was always Saul and always Paul. The word Paulus means small, so he was probably a little dude, Uh, But what you have here is Paul and Stephen. So while Paul holds the coats, or Saul Paul holds the coats of the men who murder Stephen with rocks, you've got a scene involving two Jewish people from something they call the Diaspora, Now, I have talked at length in different podcast episodes about the exile, which is what happened 600 years before Jesus, when God's people are taken away to Babylon. And then we're told 70 years later, they come home and they rebuild. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, for instance, are about that rebuilding time. Hey, not everybody went home. So Jewish people remained out in the hinterlands. And then in the successive centuries, the successive 600 years— uh, you've got Jewish people living all over uh, the Roman world. And so Stephen, which is a Hellenistic Greek name, and you've got Saul Paul, Paul, which is a Roman name, he's also a Roman citizen, uh, together in this scene, you've got two Jewish people from that those distant lands, if you will, from, with a prep school education, uh, with, uh, with, with a sophisticated uh, Jerusalem experience, but also from somewhere else. Uh, equally living in the Greek world as in the Hebrew world, uh, very distant from the rustic fishermen, if you will, of the Galilee, but rather representing this sophisticated urban kind of society. And while Stephen is being murdered, uh, Saul, Paul is watching and he sees something that he wants. Stephen is free. He's free. He's free to live, he's free to love, and he's free to die right. And I believe that this was the beginning of Paul's conversion. This sets him up for his road to Damascus experience when the light, and then God says to him, uh, Paul, Paul, uh, why do you persecute me? Meaning if, if you persecute members of the body of Christ, you're persecuting God himself. And just when Paul thinks that he's done in, uh, God asks him to join the team. And this changes his life. And then in, as a result, Paul would travel the world. He would change the world. Any good study Bible will tell you that Paul took three business trips. I think running between the years maybe 49 to 54, it's hard hard to detect. You can sort of detect in the letters uh, when they were. And did you notice I said business trips? We call them missionary journeys. I think that's because we just figured that all Paul did was preach. But actually, Paul also conducted business from city to city to city. And I need to say something about the Roman Empire in the first century. It was like a string of pearls. You had you had urban areas that were strung together by good roads. Many of these roads you can travel today, like the Via Ignatius, still exist, and parts of it you know have an interstate running over the top of it. So you, you've got good Roman roads. You've got the Mediterranean as a good source of transportation. It's a mild ocean, and then you've got cities that just that are just scattered throughout the empire, densely populated, densely packed. And we're told by tradition that Paul's a tent maker. But I want you to understand something. Paul was a Roman citizen, which is something that only people with means could acquire, especially Hebrew people would have to have means to acquire it. So he carries a citizenship, which will get him out of trouble from time to time. He also has rich friends like Priscilla and Aquila, who he meets in Corinth. These are people with resources. And sociologists have discovered that Paul's friend group, or Paul's, Paul's strata, if you will, was much higher than the average Roman, which means that Paul was probably not a tent maker, but probably a tent rep in some sort of lucrative uh, business venture, perhaps a family venture. And hey, you can make a lot of money in tents if you've got army contracts. And so he would travel the world in these three loops that get a little bigger with each, each concentric circle, if you will. And on the middle one, around the year 51, he would travel into Europe for the first time he would enter through a port called Neapolis, which today is in, the, is in the southeastern part of Greece, right across from Turkey. He would travel into Neapolis, and he would travel up to the, to the city of Philippi. Now, on the outskirts of Philippi, so this, this is where I believe he wrote to them from uh, Caesarea Maritima, but I want to tell you about Philippi. On the outskirts of Philippi, which is Acts chapter 16, if you're reading the biography of Paul, if you will. They come to this place of prayer, and it's by a river. Here's some more water. Okay, here's where water makes a difference. They there weren't enough Jewish people living in Philippi to have a have a synagogue, but they did go to the river to pray. Uh, water being uh, life giving, water being holy life, water being a place where people could gather. And before I read the scripture to you, I want to tell you there's a connection too to Saint Luke. We're pretty sure, we're pretty darn sure that Acts is a sequel to Luke. They're seamless. They're written the same way. They begin the same way. They fit together just like Godfather Part 1 and Godfather Part 2. So it's a shame that God's, John's gospel in the library is, is stuck in between them because it disconnects them in a way that they shouldn't be, really be uh, disconnected. Rather, they are, they are a seamless whole. Uh, basically, the gospel of Luke is about the story of Jesus, and then upon his ascension, into heaven and his his dispersal of the disciples, the story of Acts is the story of the church, right? Carrying on the work empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then you get this guy named Paul who didn't even know he would be included in the ranks of the apostles, didn't know that he would be called by God, if you will, to carry on the mission, and he just sets the Roman world uh, on fire. And it begins in Europe here by a river. So what's cool about the the story is that there's a connection to Luke. If you're reading Acts carefully, it is written in the third person all through the story. They, 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 they. Uh, they went to Jerusalem, they went to Cyprus, they called a follower, they right, They did something. But when you get to Acts chapter 16, it goes to the first person, which is we, the first person in grammar. Uh, we went to the place of prayer, uh, we went to the home of the jailer, uh, we went to the market with Silas, this kind of stuff, which tells us that Luke is leaving just a little bitty snapshot to say that of all the followers of Paul along the road and all these adventures and these business trips, where Paul would also tell people about Jesus, uh, Luke perhaps stayed behind. And our church, the church I serve, is called St. Luke. So I think that's really cool that there might be a connection uh, between Philippi, this place where Paul went to Europe in 51, uh, and and the patron of our church. So I'm going to read to you Acts chapter 16, and it's beginning with the 13th verse, and it's about this first conversion in Europe by water. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and we spoke to a woman who had gathered there. A certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Thyatira and a dealer in purple cloth. And the Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. Then she and her household were baptized and she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. It's a lovely little story, but there's something that might get right by us unless we live in the world. Uh, Lydia's rich. She's rich. She's got resources. She's a dealer in purple cloth, which was a, a cloth that's so rare, so hard to make. You actually make it with snails that you you pierce and milk the purple juice from them. Somehow, they're called a murex shell. And uh, it's so rare that only royalty can wear purple cloth. So she's like she's like a high end diamond dealer. And so what what Paul is able to do is to bring someone who is an influencer, not only for her whole household but for a whole community. He's able to bring a new and accessible expression of Judaism with Jesus as the Messiah returning, just as the prophets had promised. Right, being killed and raised again is the last. Passover lamb, uh, this message was just what the world was waiting for, and Paul would call it the gospel. Now, the gospel is a word that we're so familiar with, we probably don't think about what it necessarily means. I think we just think it means Christianity, or it just means the good, news, the good news of Jesus in our lives. But for Paul, the gospel was something very particular. It was a formula that must not be added to or subtracted from, and it works like this. It's three parts. The first one is we're saved by grace. It's what Paul discovered on the road to Damascus after holding the coats while Stephen was murdered or heading off to round up Christians in chains. I find it remarkable that the two pillars of our faith, both Peter and Paul, are guys that messed up real bad. Peter denied his best friend three times, and then Paul is a person who had no reason to think that God would want him on 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 his team. In another place, Paul would say, "I have acquired everything. I have a." I have a good education. I've got money. I've got a good family name. I'm blue-blooded. I've accomplished everything in life. And all these things I count as rubbish when I consider the grace of God, the love for me. Grace is a starting point. Hey, grace is what saves us. And so for this reason, my favorite verse in the whole Bible is Mark 16, 7. If you want to look it up, tell the disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you to Galilee, which means that in the empty tomb, an angel wants to remind the women, don't let Peter fall behind because he too will be saved by grace, by amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Okay, that's the first starting point of the gospel. The second was time. Now, Hebrews had a very specific idea of time. In some ways, we would say that they invented time. Uh, But meaning that, gosh, in many ways, the Bible is an invention of time because of the ancient people, beginning at the very beginning, Bronze Age stuff. uh, They didn't think in linear time. They just thought in circles or wheels. They thought about the crops or the cycles of the moon. And so the Bible would say in, say, Genesis chapter 12, for instance, that God called a man named Abram to follow him. And then Abraham, Abram, would follow God, and then he would live, and he would have adventures, and then he would die. In time, right? And then there have been episodes where I've explained to you the principle of repetition, which means that if God did something once, God will do it again. So we think of time as a gift from God. We think of linear time. That's a gift. But the Hebrews always believed in something called the day of the Lord. The prophets would talk about it. And that simply means that in one day time will end. And when time ends, then God's reign will begin, and that means that there will be no more tears, and low places will be raised up, and high places will be laid low, and everyone will be equal. It's heaven. So one day when time ends, if you will, then that will be the reign of God in heaven. And for Paul, what he discovered in Jesus Christ is that God entered time in the middle in kind of a rescue operation. Look, there's still a lot wrong with the world, but there's also a lot of beauty in it made possible in Christ and through Christ, and we call it the kingdom of God in time. I cannot find a better analogy for this, but just to say that on D-Day, when American troops in World War II landed on Omaha Beach, right, June 6, 1944, uh, World War II in the in the, Euro, in the European theater was in effect over, except it wasn't over. There'd be another year of awful fighting and bloodshed and sacrifice, Uh, but it was over, except it wasn't over. And and so that's a good analogy for for the way Paul saw Jesus entering time. Sure, it's not heaven yet, but the world's got a lot of heaven in it. And through Christ, we can find it. We can find God right under our noses. So we've got the first two, right? We're saved by grace. We're saved in time. And then finally, if we can live this way, it makes us a family. Makes us a family. Taking care of each other, looking for God together forgiving each other, uh, correcting each other when we need correcting, always always living lives of grace. I read a book recently about a restaurant tour who has a has the best restaurant in the world. Uh, it's called Eleven Madison Park and it's not like the world's best coffee. It's literally the best restaurant in the world. Over the holidays we have a podcast app. We talk about this book. But what I love about his management style is he criticizes without emotion. And praises with emotion, praises with emotion, criticizes without emotion, which means that he's a leader by grace, right? We all mess up. And so we can, we can ex- exchange honesty with each other without wounding each other. And I'll say this one more time. The gospel means grace, time, and family. He set the world on fire, including, including this little place in Philippi. In many ways, I'm sure Paul loved all of his churches, all the places that he started the movement while he's busy selling his tents from Roman city to Roman city, and these would be places you can find on a map today, Thessaloniki and Corinth and Colossa and Ephesus. These are all places you can find, but I suspect Philippi was his favorite one because this takes us now back to Caesarea Maritima and the prison alongside Herod's racetrack. And the chambers of commerce and the Roman world rushing by, not paying attention to old Paul while he's waiting for two years in his appeal to see the Roman emperor. He writes them a letter from prison at Caesarea Maritima because this idea of the gospel bought them all trouble. Trouble. Grace Time family bought them trouble. Now, Paul's letters would always follow a, a formula. Uh, they always follow a formula that was expected with a salutation. Our salutations might say, dear John, right? Well, his would start like this, and this is how uh, Philippians starts: Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's not something too dissimilar to what I say every Sunday in the liturgy. I mean, I say that kind of stuff all the time, uh, except if you're living in the Roman world, that's quite a shock. You see, peace was a gift from the emperor. Pax Romana was the gift of the emperor. And if you recall, I've told you there's an altar coming up out of the grass in the northern part of Israel that proclaimed Augustus as a god. So peace was from the emperor. And what does it mean to call Jesus Lord? Philippi was a particularly tough town to to misunderstand uh, loyalties when it came to Christians. Philippi was a very military town and a Roman town. Its history goes like this. It was rebuilt after something called the Battle of Philippi, where Caesar Augustus would secure, It was the beginning of his securing uh, his ultimate power in 42 BC. There was a big civil war there. And so it was repopulated with uh, veterans from that battle and then later pensioners. And if you travel there today, you can see that they're trying to make it as uber-Roman as possible which is fascinating because it is way out in the sticks. Uh, I went to Philippine 2018, and it took a minute uh, to get way out there. But once you do, you realize that you're in a little Rome. And, I mean, it's like any other military town. I'm trying to say like Fort Sill or Columbus, Georgia, Fort Bragg or something, where where the soldiers are justifiably proud, and they're a little more patriotic, and they keep up a little bit more with military things. uh, But it's still, regardless, it is not sophisticated. It is out in the boonies. And so for this reason, people living in Philippi, uh, wishing grace upon their neighbors and calling Jesus Lord, found themselves at every turn uh, beat up and thrown into jail. Uh, They were accused of subverting the order, if you will. Uh, Later in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are thrown into prison because they uh, heal a woman of of demons in her mind. But unfortunately, she was used, unfortunately for them, she was used to make a profit uh, in the business of sorcery for her owners. And so their owners accused Paul and Silas of being unRoman, bringing unRoman ideas uh, into their town. And I say this because Paul, writing from jail, writes to a church in jail. And in Philippians 4, verse 4, he says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. I mean, that's the kind of stuff we put on a refrigerator, right? But we don't consider that this is written by someone who's suffering to other people who are suffering, which means that deep down inside, we can rejoice. We can rejoice in a way that's not dependent on externals. We can be happy when things aren't going the way we'd hoped or dreamed. Uh, We can be happy in the face of adversity. Uh, We can begin to see religion not as some sort of rabbit's foot to get us what we want, but rather something to get us through what we need. There's a little bit of a postscript, Philippi. Um, I want us to connect, first of all, the letter, right? The letter written from a jail to people in jail and them rejoicing and being brave and being Paul's favorite church. Uh, I did travel to Philippi in 2018, and my lovely Greek guide was just so excited to show me the city. She kept remarking that it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. She couldn't wait for me to see the churches, the churches, the church. She kept talking about the churches. And when we got there, they're currently reconstructing three basilica that are enormous. It's hard to describe the size of these things with pillars the size of a house, if you will, uh, all rivaling the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, all the best of the the high Byzantine art of the 5th century. These These three cathedrals were houses of extremely powerful bishops, with palaces and jewels. And it just got me thinking that 500 years after Paul started a beleaguered little church of people who were thrown into jail, uh, now it had become a a, a church of palaces, if you will. I don't believe Paul came to start that. I don't think Paul came to Philippi uh, to start a building campaign, and I don't think he came to Philippi to start wealth. Rather, I think he came to Philippi to start hearts that were on fire for the gospel, people taking care of each other in that authentic way in their world. So perhaps a little stream where Lydia was uh, baptized and in an influencer brought her family, perhaps a, a racetrack beside the ocean where a man was imprisoned. Uh, perhaps even a military town that was hard on its people can remind us that the gospel is alive and in us even today. And that's my story about water in Philippi. Thanks, everybody.